I thought the worst parts would be the screams coming through the space station's uplinks as I watched the lights of Earth's cities go out one by one. But the worst part came later, when the transmissions returned with voices soft and sweet, saying, Don't worry, it's safe now. Come back down and join us in the dark. Come back down and embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 94 of Embrace the Void, the leading repository for the world's known unknowns. I'm your host, Aaron, and I've been excited about speaking to our guest this week since he posted an article a year ago about the world of echo chambers. Uh, We cover the current epistemic crisis and how it relates to gaming in a way that I find deeply pleasurably confirming. Uh, So yeah, let's do the thing. My guest this week is C.T. Nien, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Utah Valley University, uh, where he works as a, in social epistemology, aesthetics, and philosophy of games. Uh, T., would you like to say hi to The Void? Hello, hello, The Void. <laughs> I appreciate you not laughing too hard at my mispronunciation of your name. I literally That's had funny. him give it to me right before, and I'm sure it was still not quite right, because I'm really just so terrible at this. Uh, but I'm so glad to have you on. Um, I've been wanting to have this chat for a while, and you've been doing a bunch of stuff this summer. Uh, so yeah. thank you for taking the time. We're mainly, I think, hopefully going to talk a lot about uh, issues in, in our current state of epistemology in the world. But as I was yeah. doing some, some research into your work, uh, I saw that you had done a book on games and the art yeah. of agency. Uh, I... I'm a lifelong advocate of gaming as a personal building tool, so I was curious if you could maybe <laughs> confirm some of my biases to get us started here. Oh uh, my God, I can confirm. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll confirm and deny. I have a compl- I have a complicated picture about games, but I will probably confirm a lot of what you think. All right, good. That's we're getting ready into this right into this epistemic bubble thing, right? Yeah. So yeah, tell me, um, why are games good for people? What is what is it about games that really attracts you? So, do you want the human answer or the philosophy answer? Um, we don't really distinguish as well on this show, so we're all, I mean, we all freaks down here. I mean, I've been playing games for my entire life, and I love them intensely, and I'm fascinated by them. And I'm fascinated by a really lar- wide bro- range of games. Like, I grew up playing Go and playing video games, and I like, like, I collect stupid drinking games, uh, mm-hmm. and I rock climb, which I think is a kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I started 
when I started the games project, I ended up reading a bunch of other philosophers working on what the value of games was. And a lot of them were working on video games and a lot of them were working on, mm-hmm. they, they did what a lot of theorists do, I think, which is if you have an old theory, you use it. And the old theories that are out there are like fiction and theories of film. So they are mm-hmm. theories about video games. I mean, you've probably had this, heard this before, like video games become like art when they like are like movies in that they're graphically beautiful and that they have stories and real characters. And I was like, no, no, this is not what I love about games. Mm -hmm. So I spent like years working on this theory. And my theory is basically that like, so every art form has its own medium, you know, Mm -hmm. oil is the medium of oil painting and like film, whatever. Uh, I think the medium of games is agency. Like the game designer designs, who you are in the game. They design what your motivations are in the game. They design what you care about and they design your abilities. And so I basically think that like games are designed agencies that Mm -hmm. create different practical activities and they let you experience different ways of being practical and different ways of different. I mean, Uh so I was a terrible philosopher when I started doing philosophy. (laughs) Like I loved the issues, but as an analytic philosopher, I was shit. And I basically learned how to do it from chess. Like Mm -hmm. chess focused. It focused me on this, like, like what's look ahead. If I say this, then what are the possible things? And what was like that mindset, which I didn't have at all. Cause I was like this goofy, dreamy kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so basically one of the outcomes of the games book is that like, Games are a technology for writing down different, like, practical modes and different styles, and they, like, form a library of agencies. They're, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's... You, you. So, when you play games, you get to explore, here's the manipulative mindset, here's the perfectly cooperative mindset, here's the mindset where I'm completely focused on look-ahead, here's the mindset where I'm focusing on, like, communication, right? So, right. I basically think, like, you, you can, like... I think games are beautiful as experiences of practicality just for themselves. But I also think they develop us by mm-hmm. giving us exposure to like completely different practical modes and styles. That also opens up the door to what I think the real danger of games is, uh-huh. which is getting stuck in a different practical mode. Oh, interesting. So you can get sort of tightly wound into one kind of way of seeing and it becomes like a, that's your hammer for everything kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. when I teach this stuff to students, my slogan is like, I'm not afraid of games making serial killers. I'm afraid of them making like Wall Street financiers sure. of like getting stuck in the mode of I'm going to use everything for like maximum points, which is not, I think, what so, you should be taking out of games. Yeah. On the flip side of that, what are games that you particularly love that you think um, are, are great agency builders? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, so I don't think a single game is going to be your agency mm-hmm. builder. Uh-huh. It's going to be a wide variety. Uh-huh. But um so lately, I've been really into. Uh, do you know the game Imperial? Imperial. That sounds familiar. I don't it's think a I board it, game. Uh-huh. It looks like Risk. It's okay. about World War One. Uh, all the nations are on the board, and they like have armies and stuff. But you don't play the nations. You play the shadowy investors trading stocks <laughs> and manipulating the nations for profit. That sounds like fun. Uh, Another game that's really interesting, it's also a board game, is the game Root, which Mm -hmm. is an asymmetric, simplified version of an asymmetric war game of counterinsurgency, where where each side has totally different rules, and one side is like, Mm. (laughs) one side plays the 
bourgeois industrialist who's building resources, and another side plays the insurgents who are spreading sympathy, building outrage, and trying to stage rebellion. Mm-hmm. And another side is an arms dealer. I also get really interested in indie RPGs, about which I can talk about forever. Do you? I mean, this is an issue that I sometimes struggle with as a gamer and it's not universal but i do think that it is a large-scale problem that like as agency uh if if agency is the the sort of medium more often than not the language is a form of violence that that what do you mean well that usually when you exert agency in a game it's by hitting something or you know smashing something you know casting a spell on something like you know, there's people who are trying to change this, but I, I wonder if you worry that, like, at least for a large period of the history of gaming, it's been dominated by agency being equated with force. And, yeah. And that just, just that it's hard to translate other things than force into a functional, complex enough, interesting enough language, right? Like, you have, you have games where you're, like, your mechanisms are words or something, but, like, I think a lot of, especially video games, struggle to get out of the mindset of, like, my method is I, I break the things that are in my way. I mean, I'll say I grew up on video games, but I barely play them anymore because I find them really mechanically boring. Mm, like, uh-huh. you do the same thing. And I think, I mean, first of all, I think you're talking about modern video games, sure. and modern video games share with modern cinema, like, this obsession with this single mode of interaction. Yeah. Like, killing things and breaking things. So if you... One of the reasons that I'm so interested in the board game and indie RPG game world is that they don't mm-hmm. share that at all. So like one of my favorite indie RPGs, Sign, is mm-hmm. a game where you play in silence, inventing sign language out of a few <laughs> wow. starting signs and you have to create language. Another one of my favorites is called um, Microscope, in which you collectively invent history by moving back and forth through time and inserting events and drilling down scenes and creating a coherent history. Uh, Another of them, uh, one of my favorite role-playing games, uh, Blades in the Dark, it is like kind of an adventure game, but it's like a con people in a Victorian demon age. And Mm -hmm. the basic structure is you have these stamina points and Mm -hmm. you, when the, when a mission starts, you're in the mission and your characters have planned for it, but you, the players, haven't. And then you spend your stamina points to have flashbacks where you go back in time to plan for exactly this event. Oh, that's Notice so cool. that, like, oh. none of this is in the language of, like, so... Yeah, yeah you're right. There's this, re- there's this really interesting thing where uh, Ron Edwards, who is one of the founders of the indie RPG scene, uh, his critique of D&D, which is online on the site called The Forge, which, this is a really influential paper mm-hmm. for me, uh, he says, yeah, we wanted stories out of D&D, but D&D only simulates shopping and killing. Uh, <laughs> right. So he, so this whole world started trying to figure out, like, how could we build rule systems that don't emphasize shopping and killing? So here's a great one. Look at Lady Blackbird. It's free. It's from the same guy that made uh, Blades in the Dark, John Harper. It's online. The rule set's half a page. Mm-hmm. And the key rules are... You get experience points, not for killing things, but by, so you have motivations. You act in character, you get an experience point there. And mm. if you get yourself and your team into trouble acting in character, you get double experience points. Oh, this sounds like my kind of game. Yeah, and you have a stamina, when you have stamp, you have a stamina pool, and it, you can use the stamina pool for bonuses, and it, uh, it declines. And the way you get it back is you have a refreshment scene, which is a conversation with another player character where you talk about, 
your shared backstory. Or, I mean, basically the players oh. have to invent shared backstory to get their stamina back. So this oh. emphasizes a completely different... This is like, make up interesting shared relationship backstory to get over things, right? Totally different motivations. That sounds really cool. I, I super dig that. We should... We'll, we'll... Um, help me out, and I want to put some of these in the show notes because I know that there's some yeah. some gamers amongst our listeners who are going to be desperate to find out more about these things. So let me, I want to switch gears a little bit, uh, but as we'll find out in the third act, these two things are actually connected. You wrote, yeah, yeah. Uh, about a year ago, you wrote an article that got shared at, at me many, many times um, yeah. called Escaping the Echo Chamber, Escape the Echo Chamber for Eon. Yeah. I want to talk a lot about this because this is something that I'm really concerned about as well in the current state of our society that I think a lot of a lot of trouble that we're facing is rooted in epistemic problems. So yeah. you made a really good distinction in this article between echo chambers and epistemic bubbles. Do you want to start by explaining that distinction for folks? Yeah. So um, an epistemic bubble is a social structure where you don't hear people from the other side, and an echo chamber is a social structure where you distrust people on the other side. Uh, this whole thing started because, um, so if you read the news a lot and you read like journalists, people have become obsessed with the thing I'm calling an epistemic bubble. A lot of mm-hmm. it comes from Eli Preezer's book, The Filter Bubble, which says that, oh, because of algorithms and search engines, you never hear arguments from the other side. Cass Sunstein, who's an incredibly influential political Mm-hmm. theorist at harvard like his view is basically this is what's going on like the social media has made it so that you never hear people or never hear arguments on the other side um and i remember thinking like that's not that's nuts like if you actually look at like so if you spend time on the hardcore alt-right, they know all the arguments from the other side. They read, they watch MSNBC and they, mm-hmm. you know, follow leftist Twitter to mock and destroy, right? Right. But they know all about that stuff. So if yeah. you track this... I was going to mention, Sorry, I mean, like, yeah, I know I interact with a lot of these folks online and I, I will see them specifically, like, use the talking point, I know yeah. these other things because I do listen to those places. Yeah. So I think this is why your distinction is really key. Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah so, um, so I... Uh, I ended up reading this old, older book. It's from, I mean, you know, it's like a decade old, oh, called ancient. Echo Chamber uh, uh, by Jameson Capella, who are like a sociologist and journalist. And they, I think they're the ones that really popularized the term echo chamber. But when they describe it, they describe it as something, as a structure in which people on the inside have been taught to distrust everyone on the outside. And they hint throughout the book that it's, very much like the structure of a cult, right? And mm-hmm. a cult member is fully aware of the outside world. They just have some story that says everyone on the outside is like out to get them. And I think mm-hmm. like, so the basically I think I started looking through the sociology and the political philosophy. What I found was that people were constantly mixing these two things up and they mm-hmm. were constantly assuming that if there was anything going on, it was the epistemic bubble but I don't think that can explain anything, right? That can't explain right. climate change denial um, when you're – because climate change denialists know the evidence and they have discounting reasons. So that's the basic distinction. Yeah, I think it's a really good – and obviously folks will know that I love the, the comparison here to cults. Uh, I mean like and, – and we should talk a little bit about that term because I, I joke yep. about this show being a cult um, and I – but I think it's an important thing to to sort of bring awareness to what we mean by uh, epistemically isolating cults right. in particular, right? That 
I assume when you talk about cults, you mean ones that that in some way or another cut their um, their members off from other sources of information. That's the key feature, right? Yep. Well, it's there are two ways. To, so. I think you have to distinguish between two ways of cutting people off. Right. One is to cut them off by making them have no contact. And the mm-hmm. other is like, so I'm going to, I want to call it, this is a gross philosophy term, but credential isolation, right? Uh-huh. Like isolating people <laughs> by making them think that everyone outside is totally untrustworthy or malicious. Right. And if you're building someone that can survive contact with the rest of the world, that's what you have to do. Right. This makes perfect sense, right? Because if you're you're not going to go set up a compound Branch Davidian style, right? right? And like forcibly keep people off the internet. Your next best option, if they're if your cult members are going to be living amongst the world, right, is yep. to make it so that they're immune to the information. And you do that, right. like you're saying, with the the echo chamber, not the epistemic bubble. You also mentioned in the article that you think that like epistemic bubbles are to some extent a good thing, right? We want some amount of filtering. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not sure if it's full-on epistemic bubbling that's Mm -hmm. filtering, but, like, I think all of us have to – I mean, the interesting thing to me is that all of us have to filter our information in two ways. One, we have to cut ourselves off from a lot of information just because there's too much out there um, and you don't even Mm -hmm. have time. And the second is you have to, like, sort the world into the experts you trust because you actually don't – no human being understands 98% of the science we need. Mm-hmm. So we all do this thing. So, I mean, one of the basic parts of my story is a lot of people think something like, well, the problem is that people aren't just thinking for themselves. Everyone should just think for themselves. And I think all of us are radically dependent on everyone else. All of us need to figure out who to trust. All of us depend on experts that we cannot understand. Um, and, if you get your trust settings wrong or someone teaches you the wrong trust settings, you are screwed and you can be quite thoughtful and still be totally screwed. Yeah. I want to dwell on this us being screwed thing for a moment. since That's kind of our brand here. Like you call it a pipe dream. What people often want to do on the internet, which is to say, you know, I'm going to look at the facts for myself and figure it out for myself. And I fully agree with you. Like there is, it is impossible to become an expert in much of anything in the world today, much less all the things. So like, if this is a cult and that's the case, would you agree that for the most part, we're, we're kind of screwed on this problem? Like, it's it's an incredibly huge, like a normal cult, you you pull the person physically out of the cult and deprogram them. We can't do that with like Trump supporters, for example. So, I mean, okay. So, I don't know if we're totally screwed. I'm still mm-hmm. trying to. F- I mean, so the we'll, picture we'll I have solutions at- <laughs> certainly, I imagine, but yeah, the picture I have at the end of this article, which I still basically believe, is mm-hmm. that a lot of people think the answer is really simple, which is just show people information. That's not going to work. And I think that if the structural problem is that certain people have been taught to systematically distrust everything in the outside world, mm-hmm. you have to rebuild trust. So there's a question of it's possible to rebuild trust if someone's belief systems have been set up systematically for them to have good explanations, good-looking explanations of everyone else in the world that they're untrustworthy. So that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a possible solution. It's just extremely, extremely difficult. It's not going to be like, show people, flash, mix up their feed on Facebook. That's not going to work. 
Yeah, I mean, especially when you've got such vested interests by some individuals in keeping things sort of this this balkanized world of trust. Yeah. Like, it's, it seems so hard to, to get past any of that. And, like, do you feel like technology is making this better or worse? Um, man, so, I think... <laughs> In most cases, technology is making is exacerbating this mm-hmm. problem. I mean, I'm not like a luddite, no, but I tend not. to think that I tend to think that various social media technologies make us more powerful and have give us more control. Um, and this means that if bad actors are clever mm-hmm. enough, then they can take advantage of these technologies, and the right. technologies will act will amplify their maliciousness. So, yeah, I, I mean, so on the one hand, some people want to think say that this is an entirely new phenomenon. I think cults are an old phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. There, there does seem to be like this explosion in the last like 10, 10 or twenty years of of these kinds of epistemic traps. And I don't fully understand it. One one thing that I don't have data on that I'm really interested in is the degree to which, uh, the degree to which the bubbles that we're talking about now mm-hmm. are worse in the social media era than they were in the talk radio era. Because this hmm. the study that the echo chamber study is from the Rush Limbaugh talk radio era. This is pre social media that's like kind of old tech i would also love to see a study a serious study of the echo chamberiness of the current world versus mm-hmm. say uh 30s and 40s rises of fascism hmm. because if they look so there's one story that's oh this is technological and there's another story out there that says something like no like the rise of fascisms is a recognizable political movement that we see over and over again and we've seen exactly this before in earlier eras with no social media technology uh jason stanley's book on propaganda wants Mm -hmm. to tell that story so i i don't know yeah i mean we also would have to point out i think though that the rise of fascism was heavily aided by the technologies of that era television and stuff like goebbels was one of the first people to see the value of that kind of technology so i mean you know we're not a luddite show i i I think that the reality is often um technology is a a tool that can be used well or poorly um some technologies i think do lean in certain directions a little bit Though, and I think, like, especially, I think, I've been to add to your list of studies there, I would be curious to see how much of this echo chamber stuff is is capitalistically driven. How much of this is just, it's very cost effective to create an echo chamber where everyone needs to come there for their information. That's a strong motivator to keep your keep your people coming back to get clicks. So here's a question I have that I've been thinking of that I can't, I don't know the answer to, Uh, and the question is whether. So John Keegan, who's this historian of war, has this great picture where he says, over and over again, what you see is there's a new technology and wars are often won by the side that figures out how to use the new technology first. Mm-hmm. And I have this sure. question. I mean, it's obvious that like the alt-right is making incredibly good use of social media technologies. And there's a question about whether social media technologies lean that way or whether there's just a couple people like mm-hmm. Steve Bannon and Cambridge Analytica, who just happened to figure it out first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, this is the story you find right. in John if, Keegan. If the Nazis get the bomb first kind of situation. Yeah, yeah right. Mm-hmm. Or the, I think there's some, 
John Keegan has this like really interesting story about how like one of the reasons that Napoleon was so effective is he just figured out how to use um, how to use the new gun technology faster than anyone else. And it was just one person figuring it out. Sure. I mean, they always talk about like, you know, you're always training to fight the last war and such. Yep, that, exactly. Um, the other concern here I have, and I'm curious your thoughts about this, besides technology and consumerism driving this, is that like, as you've said, there is, there's, there's some extent and no way it seems like that we can avoid being in epistemic bubbles or having some amount of filtering, right? Having to, right. to consider expertise right. and such. And when you when you talked in your paper, you talked a little bit about trying to get outside of echo chambers. Is there really any such thing as getting outside of echo chambers? Or like, how do we yep. distinguish when we're in a better or worse environment when it comes to these things? Right. So there are two questions here. Mm -hmm. There's the question of whether it's possible to be outside of an echo chamber. And there's the question of whether you can tell whether you're in one. And I think mm -hmm. they're really different because mm -hmm. my worry is that if you can set up an echo chamber to be so insidious that people who are in a bad one think they're in an okay one. But right. I think the the interesting this is the thing I've been trying to figure out for a while and I have I've made some headway since I wrote that article. And one of the things I think we can start talking about is the purpose for your filtering system. Hmm. So Everyone needs to filter, right? So you can have a healthy epistemic community that's building its filtering for the sake of getting the right information. And you can have an unhealthy epistemic community that's setting up its filtering for the safe, sake of self-protection and expansion. And I think mm -hmm. you're going to get very, very different filtering procedures. So I tend to think that like a lot of the sciences are they're healthy epistemic communities, but notice that a lot of scientific communities are very heavily filtered and very heavily heavily policed, right? How, um, do you think, though, from the inside that you can tell the difference? I mean, if I you know have a heavily um, heavily filtered, heavily mediated anti-vaxxer community, how do right. I know that that's any different than the pro-vaxxer community? You are asking the million-dollar question that I've been okay. thinking about obsessively for a year and have been <laughs> unable to come up with a good answer for. That's I mean, the I think part that I think I, – I mean, I'm sympathetic, right? This is the void. Yeah. But like – yeah. Okay, go ahead. I mean, so uh, there's, there's an individual analog that we can mm -hmm. think about that might help us think about the large group-level analog. The individual analog is whether or not how responsive you are to motivated reasoning. Mm -hmm. Like, so are you believing things to make yourself, to make yourself, okay. You know what'll help? We should talk about porn because okay, this is what I've been thinking about. about. <laughs> let's, let's talk about porn because I think, because. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it when the guest is like, let's talk about porn. That's a good turn on the show. No, no, no. This is, great. this is, this is the most, thinking about porn has been the biggest progress I've made on this question. So uh, my co-author, Becca Williams and I, started working on this paper that started as a drunk Facebook joke and then turned into the most interesting paper we'd written. Uh, no, really. I love, I love um, modern philosophy. <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. Um, so the the question we started with is, um, what is porn in the generic sense? So the generic sense is like there's food porn, there's real mm -hmm. estate porn, there's closet mm -hmm. porn, right? We all know this sense. Mm -hmm. um, 
And one of the things we know is Big so fan you of doggo we, porn. I understand. Yeah, you you right before this uh, when we were chatting before we started recording referred to grief porn, and I've never heard that before, but I knew exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think we were when we were writing this. Uh, my co-author was listening to Saturday Night Live, and the host was like, "I'm tired of all this impeachment porn," and we're like, "Yeah, we know." Mm. That. So, uh-huh. so uh, we we went looking. Michael Ray has this great definition of sexual porn where he says that um, what it is to use something as sexual porn is to use an image of something sexual for immediate gratification without being interested in intimacy or relationship or connection. So, you know, if two lovers are trading who are into each other are trading nude pictures that's not porn but because they're using it for the sake of intimacy so so we generalized this and we said okay here's the definition of porn in the generic sense uh something is porn if you're using an image for immediate gratification while avoiding the costs and consequences of what the image is of does that make sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like food porn you're using for immediate gratification you don't have to buy it or you know, work off the calories, like real estate porn. You can just look at it. You don't have to buy it or take care of it. Mm-hmm. And then we say, this is, okay, you'll see where this is going in a second. Sure. <laughs> we say, okay, uh, here's a new kind. If it's a useful definition, then it should expose new kinds of porn. Here's one, moral outrage porn. Sure, rage porn. Mor- yeah. Yep. Moral outrage porn is um, representations of moral outrage used for immediate gratification without having to care about getting it right mm-hmm. getting the right moral view right um uh actually acting on things like so moral outrage porn is something you're using for the pleasures of confidence smugness connection to a community all that stuff without worrying about getting it right and mm-hmm. what this what this suggests to me virtue signaling right so i don't so it, we actually right? talk about this i think virtue signaling is so virtue signaling is when you use morality to show other people that you're good to, to make other people respect you. And in the virtue signaling paper, uh, the authors say that's wrong because you're using morality to gain status. Right. And I think we think that moral outrage porn is when you're using morality for your own pleasure, which is. I, I guess I feel like those things can be connected sometimes. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the way the mechanism connected. works is, right, I see outrage porn, I get outraged and feel pleasure, and then I share it as a way to virtue signal and get right. status and pleasure and all these things. Right. No, they're going to, these things are, yeah, they're all going to hook up. But just like, so there's the outward signaling and there's the inner pleasure. First of all, they're separable, right? You could Mm -hmm. just signal for no pleasure and you could just take pleasure Mm -hmm. and not forward it. But I think what we see is people do both. And you could also be Um, genuinely expressing virtue. I think it's very important to mention that like, you know, even if you are signaling virtue, you may also genuine, be genuine in your virtuous efforts, Right. right? Yeah, no, the thing, the important thing for this for me is this is not a criticism of moral outrage. Like, moral mm-hmm. outrage, I think, is incredibly important when you are careful to make sure that your moral outrage is directed well. Mm-hmm. But think about, think about, think about how someone would game their moral sensibility if they were out for moral outrage porn pleasures, right? Mm-hmm. They would make their moral sensibility simpler. They would make it less nuanced. They would make it easily offended, right? They would like tune it up and they would they would make it so it wouldn't question itself much, right? So you can imagine how you would build your moral belief system if you just wanted to get a lot of pleasure out of it. Right. Um, and the way I think about this is, well, it's an, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I mean, I, just, I mean, it seems like you can also go the opposite direction too, right? There are folks out there who gain pleasure from hyping the over ambiguity of everything, right? Yeah. There's a sort of centrist model now of just right. pretending that like everything is up for debate or ambiguous in some kind right. of ways. So, right. But I, yeah, that that is in itself and its own kind of simplification, right? It's a simplification yeah. into mysticism. Right. Um, no, this is you can okay. Let's call that sobri- moral sobriety porn. Okay. <laughs> we just. Because, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're breaking some serious ground here on this. Show. No, I'm but this happy. is this is totally right. No, so I totally whole, agree. The whole the whole point here is that it's not that like oh moral outrage is good and sobriety is bad. Mm-hmm. It's that actually I should fix the paper. I'll footnote you. We'll put moral sobriety porn in. It's yes, that there's the first ATV footnote. <laughs> there's one like there's one attitude towards morality where you're trying to get things right, and there's another attitude towards morality. Where you're like tweaking it for maximum pleasure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> or maximum signaling, and mm-hmm. so the term that I want to use for this is like it's an instrumentalization of your morality, right? It's mm-hmm. you're shifting your morality around not for the sake of the good, but for the sake of your own pleasure. Um, and I think this is—I mean, this idea has been at the heart of everything I've been thinking because I think like it's connected to games. I can talk about the game connection later, but I, I'm starting to think about echo chambers as like a slightly different kind of instrumentalization of moral beliefs. Cause mm-hmm. in an echo chamber, what it looks like is somebody has designed a moral belief system in order to get people to fall the line and get stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And they may actually make it porny because the pleasure if you can make it quite pleasurable and quite simple, that's reinforcing and easier to stick in. Mm-hmm. And so I think the detection mechanism is like a more complicated version of the porn detection mechanism, right? Because um, uh, like it's, I mean, this is going to sound, this is going to sound super techie and wonky, but it's like a best explanation thing. Like what's the best explanation of my moral system? Is mm-hmm. it that it was built to track the difficult truth or is it because it was built to give me pleasure or to, or is it built to like create this like ever growing moral community that just sucks up everything? Mm-hmm. And and are you saying yeah. that depending on which one of those things I buy into, I may be more easy to slip into an echo chamber potentially? I'm I'm saying this is maybe the answer to the how the tell if I'm in a good, a mm-hmm. bad echo chamber or a healthy mm-hmm. epistemic community. Is it giving me like, pleasure? <laughs> yeah. So this is tricky, right? Because. Right. <laughs> Um, because the reason this is the stuff I've been thinking about just the last couple of weeks, like the reason this stuff gives us pleasure is that we're often hooked up so that the use of our abilities is pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like this kind of someone's, I mean, okay, here's the, let me talk about what I've been thinking about this last couple of weeks. It's really yeah. raw. It's really crazy. I don't no, know if this makes sense. But Great. here's this basic analogy. When in the environment in which we evolved, looking for sugar and fat is great. Because sugar and fat is a decent, like, seek sugar and fat is a decent heuristic and a decent signal for mm-hmm. humans. And then someone can come along and, like, there's a gap between the signal and the target. And they can just amp up the sugar. And I think like there's something like this going on cognitively where there's a reason where we take pleasure in thinking and 
being moral. It's important that these things are pleasurable for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Kant says something like this. Spinoza says something like this, right? We, yeah. we have to be motivated, but there's a but a clever malicious force could find a way to amp up that pleasure and give right. us like the sugar version of morality. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree that like you you can get that sort of nutrient depleted version of morality that like <laughs> go, goes straight to the pleasure sensors and, right. and skips out on the hard work of, you know, building up those moral muscles. Right. Yeah. So it, it's not going to be if the question is, how can I tell if I'm in an echo chamber? And the answer is because you need a your moral system will be best explained if you're in an echo chamber by some malicious force having made it in order to hook you. Um, it's not just going to be pleasure. It's going to be like, it's going to be like, I don't know. It's going to be something as subtle as the difference between like mm-hmm. cheap candy and good chocolate. Like, right. <laughs> I don't have anything better for you than that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, that makes some kind of sense. And I mean, I think it's the sort of thing where, you know, the the first print the first stop should be massive epistemic humility right it's not total radical skepticism but it's it's being very honest about our psychologies and being very honest about the limitations of our ability to make these kinds of distinctions and then it's moving very very slowly like we see science often do right, right. right. i mean i think i think you can compare it to science as well where like the theories today are better than the theories a hundred years ago. Can we know that they're all perfect? No. (laughs) Like, and they will all likely be overturned or revised within a hundred years. So um, I do think progress is possible. I guess I'm more worried about people who are very deeply hooked into echo chambers right now. Is there any way for us to rescue them? Yeah. uh, Let me tell you, let me give you the complicated wrinkle on what we've just said that makes me more pessimistic. So I'm sometimes really tempted to think something like, yeah, okay, here's a simple picture. If you're in an echo chamber, your morality will be unnuanced and you won't have any humility and you'll be really strident. And if you're not in an echo chamber, you're going to be really humble and you're going to be really Mm nuanced. So uh, that seems really tempting. Mm -hmm. But I often think if you look at people that are doing the correct thing when they're extremely oppressed minorities in a horrific system, yeah. what it looks, what they look like, what it looks like they're doing does not look like humility and nuance. It looks like, mm-hmm. like stridency as part of a justified fight for survival, right? Absolutely. Like resistance during fascist, like, so if you said, if your trigger was, you're probably in the wrong if you're, if you're not very humble and nuanced, then being a resistance fighter in Nazi Germany is going to trick trip that criterion. Right. Um, this is the trap of the intellectual dark web, right? If you're if yeah. you're getting emotional and worked up, you must not be on the right side of an argument or something. A lot of the time. Or, right. or I think another way to run. Well, we must have very different uh, pictures I mean, of the industrial. Dark. So uh, yeah. I, I was just thinking that the another way to run the argument or to think about it is that if you are very strident and very emotional and very worked up about things, you can justify that mm-hmm. with the story that you're an oppressed minority mm-hmm. in a horrible dictatorship. And the problem is sometimes that's true, but I also think that's exactly the story that people in the alt-right are telling themselves. Sure, everyone tells themselves that story, it seems yeah. like, these days, right? You said, you said it sounded like you said, though, that maybe I have a different conception of the intellectual dark web than you. Do you, do you feel like the intellectual dark web is an echo chamber? 
Oh my god! Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I also think there are a lot of echo chambers on the left too. So oh, absolutely, no no question yeah. for sure. I just was curious if you, if you like genuinely thought that they had somehow found a way out of this problem or something rather oh, than no, being no. a major example of the problem. No, no, yeah. I don't. I I tend to think. More, I mean, I spent more time. When I was writing this stuff, I spent more time looking at Breitbart mm-hmm. than the thing that's calling itself the intellectual dart web. Uh-huh. So my like model of the emotional state is more lo- from looking at Breitbart. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I that makes yeah. sense. The, the intellectual dark web tend to be very anti. I mean, non-emotional in there. Right. They tend to do the the rational centrist TM kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you wanted to bring this back into the gaming stuff. And there was a concept in particular that I think you want to talk about involving value capture as maybe a way to address some of this. Is this, a good yeah, point you can tie that in. Oh, um, so, so this is, I mean, I don't know if this will give you a fix, but it might give you a possible way into thinking about the problem. So this mm-hmm. is one of the things I've been trying to figure out is whether or not the, problem is actually technological or not we were talking about this before Mm -hmm. and i've been trying to figure out whether there is or is not a link between twitter and social media use and the rise of echo chambers Mm -hmm. um and the best so here's the hint here's the beginning of a thought uh Mm -hmm. maybe you can help me make this connection so let's go all the way back to talking about games for a second so what you do when you play a game, if you buy Bernard... So Bernard Suit says what it is to play a game is to take on unnecessary obstacles for the sake of overcoming the struggle. The way I put this in the book is something like, a lot of the times what you're doing in a game is you're taking on a totally arbitrary goal for the sake of the pleasures of the struggle. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is an instrumentalization. This is yeah. a goal that you're instrumentalizing for pleasure. This is okay in games because games are detached from ordinary life. So what happens when we gamify ordinary life, right? When we um, we start gamifying education or something like that. So I'm fairly worried that one of the things that's happening is that in gamifying ordinary life, we are creating targets that are more pleasurable to pursue, but in doing so, we're simplifying what we're we're changing the target and the best way i can the best example i have is um imagine what happens to you if you go on twitter a lot Mm -hmm. and you go on caring about having public discourse and you get captured by the game of maximizing your retweets Mm -hmm. so i think that's going to give you a very different target than if you're on twitter for conversation Mm -hmm. or understanding so the, I have this worry, and it's—I haven't written this up yet—but um, the worry is something like uh, that. What's going on is this weird stew where gamification mm-hmm. is yet another instrumentalization that permits us to change our moral, that helps aid us to change our moral behavior and our moral beliefs for the sake of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that this is profoundly linked with the outrage porn mm-hmm. and the echo chambers. I mean, here's here's another way to put it. Okay, here's the darkest story. Are you ready for the void? Yeah. Do you know uh, Do you know the philosophical methodology called creature construction? I haven't heard of that, actually. Okay, so creature construction arguments are like, um, 
Creature construction arguments are attempts to explain where we are by imagining constructing different creatures. A lot of people attribute this to Grice, but you can find it in Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer has some awesome creature constructions. My favorite is a creature construction where he says, like, um, okay, are we made for happiness or pleasure? Imagine that you are an all-powerful god and you're making creatures for their own happiness. Mm -hmm. How would you design them? You would make them start out strong and get stronger. You would make them forget about pain quickly, but remember pleasure forever. You would make pains fade, and you would make boredom basically impossible for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, how would you design a creature to make it suffer? You would make it strong in the beginning, but make it weaken over time. You would give mm-hmm. it a long memory, so it would remember how much it had lost. You would make pleasures pass a moment and you would make pain last for a really long time, mm-hmm. and then you would give it just enough hope so it wouldn't kill itself. And then Schopenhauer basically says, which do we look like? And then shrugs and ends the paper. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a creature construction argument. I see. So, yeah, I've never heard the name, but I certainly understand the idea. Yeah. yeah. And I um, mean, it's sort of the kind of argument that, that atheists, for example, will raise to be like, this was created by a perfectly loving being for the sake of yep. experiencing perfect. Right, this obviously doesn't work so well. Um, and then it seems like the idea would be that the social media comes along and capitalizes on that that flawed kind of nature by right. um, you know uh, reminding us of things and then and making right. us want things and all the different right. mechanisms people get into. Yeah, I was actually thinking. For, well, first of all, let, side note: Schopenhauer is not only, as far as I can tell, um, a great source of creature construction arguments a lot of them look like evolutionary psychology arguments and darwin was influenced by schopenhauer so this there may be a direct line there anyway sorry that's just a total tangent. and schopenhauer um, kicked a woman down the stairs we should mention oh my god <laughs> <You're> <laughs> philosophy people um yes <laughs> never forget schopenhauer jesus because she um, was too loud it's the male the male philosopher supreme yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I should tell that story in my classes when my students get too excited about Schopenhauer. Anyway, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. here here's actually the here's actually uh my thought with the creature construction argument. Mm-hmm. Um imagine you wanted to build a community and you wanted to build that community for the sake of the pursuit of morality. You wanted to build a community mm-hmm. that was that like improved its understanding of morality and pursued it evermore how would you build that i'll ask you how would you build that community oh god uh <laughs> this is the republic i would philosopher kings i think and guardians no um i would you know i mean i i do think about this a lot as a as an online community organizer and i guess right. I, I would i would turn to the things that i've learned in the process of that as ways to try to things like calling it a cult in the sense right. of like taking the piss out of your own material yep. from the beginning, right? If it's yep. not humility, it's at least laughing at yourself to keep right. yourself um, from taking it too seriously. Stuff like that, I think, is the the main right. things I would go for. Yeah, it looks like you I mean what you're saying is a lot. You would build in self criticism. You'd build in norms of humility. You would build in like mm-hmm. a lot of self checking. You would build in like an interest in nuance and the ability to change. Right? Okay. Yeah. Imagine. You were building a community, <laughs> and your your goal was you didn't give a shit about morality. You were you willing to make whatever moral beliefs uh, and environment were necessary, yeah, in order to get this community to take hold and thrive and grow, right? Just virally, 
How would you build that? I'd, I'd build YouTube, right? That's the, <laughs> the punchline here is I'd build a YouTube algorithm and release it on the world. <laughs> now, I was thinking you would build it with <laughs> super simple morality that uh-huh. was really pleasurable. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, Flashy right? pictures. Uh-huh. <laughs> you would build it with radical distrust on the outside so that that morality... Uh, their moral system would change and you would build it in a, uh, sorry, so that moral system would stay the same mm-hmm. and you would build it uh, in an environment in which people got constant, constant pleasurable feedback mm-hmm. for expressing the moral systems, like, say, getting likes and retweets for saying what your community likes. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I will fully concede I get those pleasure sensors set off too. <laughs> I mean, so do I. So do we all. It, I think, right? So yeah, we all like sugar. Yeah, and so I'm curious before we run out of time here. Obviously, you can't tell me what the um the future is going to hold, but like are you optimistic or pessimistic for the next year and a half when it comes to us managing to have a presidential election in the midst of all of these issues? Oh my god, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually basically this is like the world's most horrifying experiment. Yeah. Because I basically have a lot of I don't know, I'm going to find out. Like, Mm. I don't know whether this is a momentary flash in the pan. I mean, I think also a lot of things will depend. I I don't know. I'm watching to figure out Mm -hmm. whether this is like the inevitable progress of everything or if it was a momentary blip. Um, I really don't know. It'd be interesting. I'd be curious to see if the epistemic bubble or sorry, um, the echo chambers themselves uh, have a, a shelf life in the sense of becoming boring like other games do. Right. right, like people might get bored eventually of that sugar overdose all of the time, and then might go try to seek something else, and that could be a way that it naturally ebbs some. Because it's hard because you you feel like right. we're in this self perpetuating cycle, and it's like, is it ever going to break? Will it break right. naturally? Does some like incredibly serious worldwide event have to happen to snap people right. out of this? Yeah, I I haven't seen anything that looks like people getting bored of echo chambers. Mm -hmm. I have seen the splintering of them, or it seems both on the alt-right and the leftist echo chambers I track, that you'll get communities that kind of like have ideological divides, and then Mm -hmm. they split into two, but they both basically have the same flavor. They just have like slight (laughs) doctrinal (laughs) differences. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) you know what I mean, right? Yeah, it's the life of Brian, I understand. There's like, now there's like Breitbart World, and then there's Red Pill, and then there's like, each of them has a slightly different flavor. and 300 flavors of Nazi, I know. (laughs) They all get mad if you call them the wrong kind of Nazi. (laughs) That's exactly it. No, we've gone from 31 flavors of Nazi to 300 flavors of Nazi. Is it better? (laughs) I don't know. The white guilt liberation front, not the liberation white guilt front. Yeah, fucking ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. So, Um, I mean, I wonder if that that splintering is a a result of boredom, though, actually. Like, if the reason that you see constant factionalizing is that, like, once you have a true echo chamber, you know, gaming, good games require conflict, and there's no conflict in an echo chamber, so that gets dull. Okay, I have a really depressing, dark, fucked up story for you. Oh, great. It's a good way to move us out of the uh, last segment of the year. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but but about this, in answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think watching the games world... Mm -hmm. There are beautiful, fascinating, subtle games out there that are so wonderful. That's not what most people play. What mm-hmm. most people play is they play the same fucking game, and then they get bored of that game. And so someone introduces them to a game 
that is almost the same, but has one or two tiny mm-hmm. shifts. Sure. And I think a lot of this is related to you. So this is a totally different line of what I've been thinking about. It might matter. I think it matters whether you are playing games that are interesting or whether you're playing games in an addicted state. And if you're playing games in an addicted state, you're going to shift. You're going to get slightly bored of one addiction and you're going to shift slightly. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're addicted to sugar, you're going to get bored of Butterfinger and then you're going to change it to M&Ms, right? That, you're still addicted to sugar. You've just changed a tiny bit to ward off boredom. And the same thing looks to me like, I mean, my own addictive experiences are to grindy RPGs, which I like right. can't touch with a 10-foot pole now. Addicted to them, you're tired of one, so you shift to one that has slightly different graphics and a slightly different crafting system so it wards off boredom, but you're still addicted to the same fucking thing. And my mm-hmm. worry is that's what ha- is happening with echo chambers. If someone's built the system to be an addictive game, mm-hmm. you're going to get a little bored and you're going to shift from Nazi flavor 76 to Nazi flavor 77. <laughs> but it's the same shit in a slightly different package that feels like a different game, even though you're just grinding. Sorry. I'm mixing all my metaphors now, but I think no, you get the idea. It's, it's great. There's a, a sequence in American Gods that I often think, I don't know if you're a fan of the show or not, uh, yeah. or the book. Um, yeah. Mr. World has a monologue where he says that like the, the ultimate goal is one corporation feeding everyone salsa. You know, some can choose chunky and some can choose smooth, but they'll yeah. all be eating salsa. <laughs> no, this is, this is, yeah. And that's, that's the worry. Like, Hey, yeah, I've shifted from Twitter hashtags to Facebook. You, you get the idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we 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 post articles right about the slide, the the uh, slide via uh, algorithms from the tame into the extreme, and then the people complain that they're in those articles, and the cycle yep. continues. Yep. Uh, I think it's great. Um, this is this is wonderful, but I, I think we need to wrap up and head on over to making the void livable. Um, did you have any final thoughts uh, you wanted to share? Any final, maybe dark or not dark thoughts that you wanted to share about these issues before we head over? Um, yeah, people keep asking me after I give this talk if we're fucked, mm-hmm. and I have no idea. That's, Fair enough. That's 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 what I got for you. You're in the same boat as all the Brexit um, people and saying, don't ask me that question. God damn it. Stop asking me that question. You don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. This is We're yeah. breaking new ground in the void here every day. Yeah. Um, great. That that's a you need a t you need that on a t shirt. Breaking new ground on the void. Breaking new ground. All right, I'll get that in our merch page. Um, <laughs> so making the void livable. I think you have something for us. Um, give me the question again. Well, so this is a segment where we just try to <laughs> try to end things on a happy note, especially if okay. we've gotten deep into the void. Something that that really makes things better for you, or something that you think someone else is doing that's making things better. Right. Um. I mean, I believe in art. Great. I believe in beauty, and I believe that, I don't know, humanity's going to die anyway. But <laughs> there's, at some point or another, entropy's coming for us. Civilizations can't last that long. We know that. Uh, so, uh, so I uh, take my comfort in various interesting forms of beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh and games are a part of that <laughs> so yeah anything in particular a, you want to you want to say stands out to you at the moment um i don't know interesting game design is so 
I mean, so we should we can go back to talking about what we were at the very beginning, like mm-hmm. this flourishing of interesting independent game design in the role playing world, mm-hmm. um, and in the board game world, which I think is the new art form of our time. You know, maybe we'll all die and burn in a screaming wreck, but we can say at least we came up with a new art form while that was true. going on. It's this true. is not it's, it's very such helpful. It's an interestingly I'm retro sorry. art form, though, too, right? It's sort yeah. of funny that it goes back to, like, the sitting around a table with solid right. pieces kinds of stuff. Right. Um, you mean retro, that. like, because it's not a video game? Cause it's, yeah, because, I mean, it's not using the, the cutting edge of technology, it feels like, or something like that, right? Yeah, not, it's... Yeah. It's really interesting to me. There's this like whole flourishing of role playing games and video games. Uh, sorry, role playing games and board games. And one of the things, if you look in those communities, what you find are a lot of people like me who grow up on a lot of computer games. Mm-hmm. And then some of it's that we get older now we have families, but some of it's like, I think there are some amazing indie computer games, but the mainstream stuff I find more and more to traffic in this kind of like sugar addictive, compulsive, whatever. Right. And I. F- think that a lot of people have sh- some people have shifted away from that and what you i think basically a bunch of us grew up playing computer games and thought that was a thing that that was basically a basic element of life mm-hmm. and then we started looking for better ones and then people started making them and that's creating this whole flourishing of weirdly I know they're retro, but I I, I don't mm-hmm. I, I don't have an explanation for you about why so much of the interesting stuff is tabletop right now. Maybe because it's free. <laughs> it doesn't cost almost Maybe. anything to make. Maybe I mean, because you can spend more time on the mechanisms if you're not dumping money into high quality graphics or something like that. I don't. Yeah, I mean, maybe question. there's something like that. There, you know, that's maybe a plausible explanation. Like. Like, I know, for example, one of the explanations for why TV is getting a lot better is that as movie budgets get more expensive, studios are more and more artistically conservative. Mm. Um, And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that, like, a lot of the people that made incredible art movies in the 70s and 80s are still around, Mm -hmm. but they're directing TV. And one of the reasons you get so much good TV is (laughs) Hollywood. David Lynch can't make movies anymore. Right, right. That's really important. He, the reason he didn't make m- movies is that no one will give him make money to make movies. And you're like, that's fucking crazy. But he can make TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Maybe there's something like that. And it's also true that the video games I love, and there's some that I love passionately, mm-hmm. are all from, all have pretty crappy graphics. Like, I'm thinking like, Baba is You, which is this incredible puzzle game. Sure. Uh, Dream Quest, which is this extraordinary deck building game on iPhone. Um, mm-hmm. All of these have basically crap graphics, mm-hmm. um, and it lets a very small group of people basically make games to their taste. Yeah, I mean, one of the most popular games of the past ten years was Faster Than Light, which you know yep. looks like it was made thirty years ago, uh, but it's such a great game. So I yep. mean, I, I definitely uh, agree with you. I am sort of limited to the use of Mac games on Steam at the moment. That's my major yep. source of gaming, and I think it actually has. Uh, inadvertently inoculated me from you know getting into a bunch of crappy games because most of the main mainstream games aren't made for mac and a lot of the stuff that is made for mac is more on the artsy side yep this is um by the way if you're on steam have you played baba's you i haven't gotten to play it yet i've I've seen it referenced a couple of times um so it's certainly on my short list um i mean this is this is this is actually relating right back to the stuff we were talking about before but Mm -hmm. um 
I don't have a good story about what this is, but I do know that when I played a lot of grindy, grindy role-playing games, and I played a, computer role-playing games, and I played a lot of like the Civilization games, mm-hmm. which I was addicted to, I would just lose months. Like I had no memory. Sure. Like I, I had a no... lot of time to World of Warcraft, I understand. Yeah, it's like I've never touched World of Warcraft because I know that's exactly the kind of thing I'm weak towards. And then I started playing other games. Like I started playing games like like Baba's You and Portal. Um, mm-hmm. And I started playing rock climbing and I started playing more board games. Each of these is like a rich memory. Like I have a very deep, rich, emotional narrative of what goes on on a rock climbing mm-hmm. weekend or mm-hmm. a good role playing session or like solving the puzzles in Baba's You. Like they're very keen. Mm-hmm. And I like, I don't know. The, I worry about technologies getting us better at being addicted at this like to this blur of nothing right and when on the other hand there's all this like these incredible this incredible music these incredible games are so like potent and rich Mm. and instead we binge crap and craft things forever and have no memory yeah i mean it's 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 I would say it's a little—it's mixed for me because I have some really wonderful memories from playing World of Warcraft, and can also see that it was a horribly yeah. addictive thing yeah. that consumed a bunch of time. So, yeah. like, maybe we'll have to have you back on at some point to talk about uh, healthy gaming versus unhealthy gaming and that yeah. sort of thing. But I think, unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time here. So, can I? Um, do you want to share with folks where they can find your stuff? Oh yeah, you can find me on Twitter at ad underscore hawk. That's a d d underscore h h a w k. Uh, you can find me. My website is objectionable.net, uh, and there are links to all my papers. And my book, Games Agency is Art, is coming out in the beginning of 2020. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, T, for coming on. This was a really fun conversation, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back on again. Okay. It's awesome talking to you. I want to give an extra special thanks to all our listeners and patrons for being so very patient this last month. I promise I will work hard to make sure a gap like that never happens again. Very special thanks to our top patrons, Dave Maslich, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Philosophy Book Club will live again, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Thank you all so very much. If you would like more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to my other show, Philosophers in Space. Also, come join in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group. I promise you won't regret it. Uh, If you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, now and forever, you are the void and the void is you.